my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict iron jaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your undead revenant, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode includes Jason Kills, Macabre Carving, and Skull Thievery. Join me at this big mansion in Scotland where we can hang out with Paris Hilton and chit-chat about spooky moving pictures. Number one, Jason Goes to Hell, The Final Friday, 1993, directed by Adam Marcus. Jason falls for a trap and is blown to bits. A coroner is compelled to eat Jason's heart, which turns him into Jason. Jason can't stay in bodies that don't have Voorhees blood in them for long, so he's looking for his half-sister Diana, her daughter Jessica, and or her granddaughter Stephanie. Jason ends up killing his half-sister Diana after Jessica's baby daddy shows up. A bounty hunter gives Jessica a knife that transforms into an ornate Jason-killing dagger in her hands. Jason can only be killed by a Voorhees. The bounty hunter is killed. Jessica stabs Jason, thus sending him to hell. Jason is the killer. Jason Goes to Hell, aka What the Hell Am I Watching, has to be the worst Friday the 13th movie. I refuse to believe it can get worse than this. Jason looks worse than ever. I don't know if it's because Kane Hodder got older or because New Line Cinema didn't know what Jason's supposed to look like. It's probably the latter. I doubt Hodder had any say in the actual look of the character. Jason Hell doesn't feel like a Friday the 13th movie. There's barely any Jason as Jason, besides in the very beginning, and after sperm demon Jason crawls into the nether regions of his dead half-sister's corpse and magically transforms instantly back into grotesque, battered-by-the-ages Jason. What? Surprised that at some point in Jason Hell, Jason becomes demon semen? Throughout the entire runtime, I kept asking myself, what's going on? Why is this happening? Am I watching the wrong movie? Here's what I wanted from a movie titled Jason Goes to Hell. A movie where Jason goes to hell and starts killing people in hell. You could have him run into infamous evils of the past like Hitler and other serial killers who'd be shown partaking in drugs and sex in the underworld. Jason can't have that, so what if it's fire and brimstone down here? Partying is never okay. That's a movie that could have been lauded as a ridiculous last-ditch effort that saved the series and revitalized it. Jason Goes to Hell is some fanboy's crappy Evil Dead script that someone found in the garbage and changed some names. Turns out it was written in only four days. Now, Friday the 13th movies don't seem all that complicated. I could see one being written successfully in four days if... Whoever was attempting to do this was a fan of the series at all. 
Neither of the writers attached to Jason Hell had any past experience in the horror genre. One of the writers, Dean Laurie, did write a zombie horror romantic comedy, but that's not what you're looking for in a Friday the 13th writer. This was also the director, Adam Marcus's first time directing. So written in four days with a first time director at the helm. If that's not a recipe for disaster, I don't know what is. The bones of the movie aren't all bad. You could easily take out all references to Friday the 13th and turn Jason Hell into a movie about a body jumping serial killer that's hunting down relatives since he needs one of their bodies to survive in the long term. Jason's barely in the movie as is. There are some staples of the series that I did appreciate. Windows are destroyed. A couple survives. The gore and practical effects work in Jason Hell are the best the series has seen so far. When Jason is forced out of a body, we see the man he was in melt into a disgusting, goopy mess. A person has their torso cut viciously in half. Jason is blown to bits. Kudos Al Magliocchetti and Effects Studio K&B. The only practical effects work that wasn't great were the hands that pulled Jason to hell. They looked like hands that would grab kids trying to make their way through Nickelodeon's hidden temple. Time for a rant. Why is there a prolonged scene where the bounty hunter and Steven are in prison where Steven has to let the bounty hunter break his fingers for exposition? Who decided it was a good idea to retcon everything and have Jason have a half-sister? Why was Steven played by a guy that looks like the lame version of Paul Rudd with a stupid loser voice? How is New Line Cinema only going to buy the rights to Jason, which doesn't allow them to bring back Tommy Jarvis like they wanted? Jason never talks. You cannot have Jason talk, even if he possesses some cop named Randy. So Jason just turns back into Jason if he ends up in a Voorhees. There wasn't even a chance of Jason killing people in a baby's body. Why even have the baby in the movie then? The bounty hunter is built up to be a real badass and does practically nothing besides dump exposition the whole movie. Jason looks really stupid and overdone. Jason should be a big intimidating dude, not a hairy blob man. The most insane part in the movie has to be when coroner Jason captures a sheriff, straps him down, and carefully shaves off the sheriff's facial hair before possessing his body. What? Not a mustache fan, Jason? Why would Jason care at all about what the temporary body he is possessing looks like? I guess Jason cares a little bit about his appearance, which is why he usually covers his face, but still. How come Diana and Jessica look almost the same age? Jason Goes to Hell is a garbage film that made me wonder what the hell was going on throughout the entire movie. I do think the director's idea of putting the Necronomicon in the movie to explain how grown-up Jason was able to come back from the dead is cheeky, but it's still stupid. Jason Goes to Hell, the final Friday, is a new low I wasn't prepared for. I did love everything up until the coroner ate the heart, which happens probably about 15 minutes in. Number 2, Jason X, 2002, directed by James Isaac. In the future, Jason is being studied at a facility. Jason escapes his restraints, kills some people, and is then pushed into a cryogenic chamber by a scientist named Rowan. She freezes Jason, who stabs her through the chamber door, causing her to also freeze. About 500 years later, both Jason and Rowan are found and brought aboard a spaceship. Rowan is resuscitated. Jason comes back to life. The captain of the ship wants to keep Jason alive so he can sell the maniac. 
Jason starts killing everyone. An android defeats Jason and destroys parts of his body, but nanobots rebuild him stronger than ever. The few remaining survivors, including Rowan, escape Jason in a shuttle right before the ship they were all on explodes. The explosion sends Jason flying towards the shuttle. A mercenary that was doing a spacewalk to help with the escape tackles Jason away from the shuttle. Jason lands in a lake on Earth 2. Jason is the killer. A girl also blows herself up in an escape pod after getting in first, locking the doors, not allowing anyone else in, and freaking out. I hate the trope in movies that is insufferable character makes it to the only safe place and locks everyone else out. Jason X, aka Jason Goes to Space, is the first made-for-TV movie in the series. It wasn't made-for-TV. What? What do you mean it was... It was released in theaters? Like a theater played it years later as an event? You mean actually released originally? In theaters. No way. Mm-mm. The early 2000s were whack. Jason X looks and feels like a made-for-TV movie that would air on sci-fi. I guess the only tell that it wasn't a TV movie is the nudity. That and maybe the frozen face smash kill, which is incredible and probably a bit too gory for basic cable TV at the time. That's the first kill that happens once Jason is in space and by far the best one. The only other notable gore is when the android character blows chunks off Jason with a future shotgun. Jason X is the campiest, cheesiest installment in the series. Jason looks the worst he ever has, both as regular Jason and cyber-enhanced Jason. The character looks straight-up goofy in this one. This is the last film where Kane Hodder played Jason, and I'm okay with that. He was good in 7 and 8, but didn't work for me in 9 and 10. That's most likely due to the terrible character designs, but I never felt attached to any of the Jasons during my watch through. Well, I really liked CJ Graham in 6. His presence was intimidating. In Jason X, Jason's practically a cartoon character. I don't like being able to consistently see Jason's eye under the mask. The set design feels cheap. Maybe I'm misremembering the times, but I feel like most space movies in the early 2000s looked a lot better than Jason X. The ones that were released in theaters, at least. Some of the effects work isn't great. There's an android character whose head is cut off. The android's creator saves the head and starts running around with it. So a robot head was created, which is shown way too much and doesn't look anything like the actor. An android having a showdown with Jason is a lot of fun, even though it's also presented in the cheesiest way possible. I appreciated that right after Upgraded Android is introduced to fight Jason, she takes a machete in the torso and pretends to be deactivated. I want to believe this was done purposely as a nod to Badass Part 5 Tommy Jarvis being taken out instantly in a very similar manner in Part 5. Luckily, the android is still able to have a showdown post-first machete attack. There is some interesting tech shown in Jason X. One of the crewmates ends up with his arm cut off after frozen machete holding Jason falls over. The wound is instantly closed up and the arm is reattached easily once the crew gets back to the ship. I was hoping there would be at least one character that Jason would continuously kill, only for new technology to keep bringing them back. It would have been funny to see Jason get frustrated by killing the same person over and over again. 
there are automatically opening doors on the ship. Jason has never been a fan of doorknobs. It would have been fantastic to see Jason stumble into a room after a door he was about to kick in opened on its own. Nice small touches like that, with Jason being a fish out of water with all the new technology, should have been included. The technology doesn't play nearly a big enough role in this futuristic space movie. There are some familiar faces in Jason X that made me realize it was a very Canadian production. Amanda Bruegel, who I know from Kim's Convenience, is one of the mercenaries, and the way more recognizable David Cronenberg played the guy that wanted to move Jason from the facility he was being kept in, who's quickly killed by Jason. The most important staple, window destruction, is present. Jason X is a goofy, entertaining time, it's not a great movie by any means. I watched it right after Jason goes to hell. If you eat a mediocre chicken tender right after you've eaten a bad one, it's bound to taste better than it normally would. Number 3, Friday the 13th, 2009, directed by Marcus Nispel. Some teens head out to an abandoned camp, Crystal Lake. Jason kills all of them except Whitney, who resembles his mother. A few months later, Whitney's brother, Clay, is looking for her as a new group of teens head to one of the group's father's cabins on Crystal Lake for some fun. Jason starts killing all the teens. Clay and one of the teens named Jenna find Whitney. Jason kills Jenna. Whitney pretends to be Jason's mom, which gives her and Clay enough time to get the upper hand on Jason. Whitney stabs Jason with his machete. Clay and Whitney decide to dump Jason's body into Crystal Lake along with all his prized possessions. Jason springs from the lake and grabs Whitney. Jason is the killer. When I started this full watch through of all the Friday the 13th movies, I thought I had already seen the reboot. It's still possible that I did, but I didn't remember anything. It's not like the reboot is a very memorable movie. Freddy vs. Jason? I have seen that and will be re-watching it once my fiancé gets up to speed on the full Elm Street series. I remember that movie being a great, though ridiculous time. I'm very excited to revisit it. Anyway, this section is about the reboot that has some familiar faces in it. One of the dudes from Supernatural plays Clay. I've never watched the show. Is it any good? I'm not against watching it. The reboot also includes a bunch of other I've seen them in something actors. My biggest issues with the reboot are the editing and shaky cam. It's littered with fast, nauseating cuts and shakiness. It's important to give the viewer time to take in a shot before cutting to another and another and another while flailing all over the place. The opening credits have especially heinous editing. The reboot is the first movie in the series to make midriffs a focal point. The early 2000s sure did love midriffs. My favorite quote in the entire movie is, What, because I'm black I can't listen to Green Day? This is said by Lawrence, half of a duo that are the best characters in the movie. Lawrence and Chewie are two best friends that love chilling, smoking weed, and maybe jerking off in the living room of a house where one of their friends could pop up at any moment. The latter was something Lawrence almost did. At one point, Chewie is sent out to a shed to get some tools to fix a chair he broke. Jason kills Chewie, but since Lawrence doesn't know that, the brave best bro goes out to the shed, knowing the danger, to try and save his friend. It's great to see a solid male friendship in a Friday the 13th movie. 
Jason in this reboot thinks things out a lot more than past Jasons. Reboot Jason sets traps and alarms around his property. He gives off heavy wrong turn vibes. I'd actually say the Friday reboot and wrong turn would make a great double feature. There's a decent amount of well done practical gore. The reboot has the best throat slash of the franchise and a gnarly bear trap scene. It also has one of the most torturous deaths in the series where Jason suspends a girl in a sleeping bag right above a campfire. I'll take the super hot rock in the chest from Manhattan over that, I think. I'd probably die quicker from the rock. There's a rich kid whose dad owns the cabin where most of the action happens. He's always like, don't mess with my rich family stuff. Somehow in this cabin in the woods owned by rich white people, the only gun on the property is a small pistol. As soon as Richie Rich grabs the gun, he starts firing at anything that moves. If I was at the cabin, I'd be more afraid of him than Jason. At least Jason isn't going to shoot me. Well, with a bullet. This version of Jason is a master with a bow. He lands a very far away headshot on a guy that's zooming around on a boat. Like I've previously mentioned, wrong turn vibes. The window staple is present in the reboot, but only the character grabbed by Jason through a window. No one is thrown through one, and Jason doesn't use one instead of a door either. Surprisingly, only the siblings survive the movie. Normally, it's a couple that are romantically involved, but Jenna bites the big one. It's interesting that the Friday the 13th series doesn't really follow the final girl trope for most of the franchise. The climax of the reboot is incredibly weak. A chain is wrapped around Jason's throat, then thrown into a wood chipper. Instead of Jason being pulled into the spinning blades, he's hanged and then stabbed in the gut with his machete. No chipped up masked maniac or slow motion machete decapitation. It is pretty funny when Clay and Whitney dump Jason's body in personal effects in Crystal Lake like some kind of resurrection ritual. There's zero logic behind their decision to do so, and it's not like they were close to the lake at all when Jason was killed. The 2009 Friday the 13th reboot is an entertaining but overall forgettable movie. Number 4, The Pumpkin Carver, 2006, directed by Robert Mann. Jonathan and his sister Lynn are at home on Halloween. Lynn is supposed to go out with her boyfriend, Alec. A robed figure with a knife sneaks into the house and attacks Lynn. Jonathan comes to her aid and kills the robe figure who was Alec playing a prank with a fake knife. Years later, Jonathan and Lynn go to a Halloween party. Jonathan keeps seeing Alec. Partygoers start dying. There's a creepy old man that says Jonathan is a carver. More people die, including a girl Jonathan met and liked named Tammy. Jonathan and Lynn corner the old man who seems to be the killer. Lynn goes to get help and Jonathan kills the old man after hallucinating that Alec is there. Lynn and Jonathan then begin to drive off. Jonathan transforms into Alec and Lynn says, It's you! as he lunges at her. Jonathan, or Jonathan possessed by Alec, or Alec's vengeful spirit, is the killer. Since Lynn doesn't yell Jonathan or Alec before she's lunged at, there's no way to truly know what the hell was going on. I think Jonathan is supposed to be the killer, but it's possible there was a supernatural element. What I know for sure is that Jonathan is a hero for murdering Alec. Alec was the worst. He only got a single beer to take to a party, which he decided to shake up and spray all over Jonathan just to be a jerk. 
He burped in Jonathan's face and ruined his pumpkin. Killing Alec would have been justified with or without the whole robed maniac mix-up. The Pumpkin Carver is about what you'd expect from a crappy straight-to-video slasher. It's a slow-going movie that has a few fun bits here and there. What it has going for it the most are some decent creative kills and very Halloween-y set design. Whoever turned the bar into a Halloween hotspot did a solid job. There are two kills that stand out. A guy shoddily painted up to look like the Incredible Hulk has a big hole drilled into his torso. A very similar kill happens in Jason X where a mercenary falls on a practically identical drill bit and spins down it, but instead of gravity doing most of the work, the drill is on when it kills the fake Hulk. It's cheesy, practical, and fun. The best kill is also the most juvenile and stupid. There are two amazing characters, Bone Daddy and Spinner, who are the gods of the party. Both are adorned in togas and their friendship is reminiscent of Lawrence and Chewie from Reboot 13. Just two bros that love each other. Unfortunately, the duo is split up by the killer who decapitates Bone Daddy as he's draining the lizard. Can you tell where this is going? Bone Daddy's head falls in front of his body, thus leading to Bone Daddy peeing on his own face. Perfect comedy. I am a big fan of that level of stupidity. The gore effects are well done in the pumpkin carver, which was surprising. The poster has a creepy carved up face on it that never makes an appearance in the movie, but there are some other carved up faces that look fantastic and disgusting. Tammy has her face jack-o'-lanternized and a lit candle placed in her mouth to really sell the lantern aspect. Another movie that does the human head turned into jack-o'-lantern is Terrifier, which has tons of great practical gore, an amazing performance by David Howard Thornton, and nothing else of merit. The acting in Pumpkin Carver is a mixed bag. David Phillips and Alex Weed are great as Bone Daddy and Spinner. They're perfectly campy. I found Minka Kelly endearing as Tammy. She comes off like an incredibly awkward girl you could run into in real life. Her delivery is by far the most genuine. It makes sense that she's one of the actors who's had the most success post The Pumpkin Carver. Michael Zara played Jonathan and he provides a lot of laughs with his overacting. The Pumpkin Carver is a silly movie filled with pop culture references, awkwardness, and lulls. While it has some nice goofiness and kills, you'll easily be able to find a better Halloween horror movie to watch. Crazily enough, a lot of the cast ate actual bugs for the movie. I sure wouldn't have eaten any bugs for the pumpkin carver. Number 5, House 2, The Second Story, 1987, directed by Ethan Wiley. Baby Jesse is sent away by his parents who are murdered shortly after by the ghost of Slim who is looking for a magical crystal skull. Years later, grown-up Jesse moves into the house where his parents were killed. Jesse and his buddy Charlie learn about the crystal skull. They dig up Jesse's great-great-great-grandfather thinking he was buried with it. He was and is still alive. Hijinks ensue. Gramps, Jesse, and Charlie try to protect the skull from people that are trying to steal it. An electrician that is also an adventurer helps out at one point. Slim comes back and shoots Gramps. Jesse defeats Slim. Gramps passes away. Jesse leaves the skull as a marker on Gramps' grave and goes to live in the Old West with Charlie and others they met defending the skull. Slim is the killer. The first house is a bad movie. Luckily, House 2 has nothing to do with the first one. There is a big similarity between them, though. They're both bad. 
Why did I expect House 2 to be any better than the first? I'm a fool. There are things in House 2 that should be fun. Two dudes and a really old grandpa running around different locations as they try to keep ownership of a skull sounds like decent bones for a horror comedy. House 2 is listed as a horror comedy, but there aren't any horror elements outside of zombie looking slim shooting Jesse's parents in the first five minutes. That's all the horror in House 2. After that, it transforms into a bad 80s adventure movie. The easiest way to explain House 2 is saying it's like the Goonies if almost all the characters were unlikable and the adventuring sucked. There are two entertaining characters in House 2, the first being Jesse's girlfriend Kate, who he randomly cheats on causing her to leave. She's a record producer. I wish there was more in the movie about her booking bands. Kate's played by Lar Park Lincoln and is one of the many ties to the Friday the 13th series. House 2 was produced by Sean S. Cunningham, who directed the original Friday the 13th and produced some of the sequels. Kane Hodder, the stuntman that played Jason the most times, also appears in House 2 as a guy that's thrown over a second story railing. Harry Manfredini, the man behind almost all of the music in the Friday the 13th series, did the music for House 2, a lot of which is just recycled from Friday the 13th movies. The most fun I had while watching House 2 was seeing all the connections to Friday the 13th. Besides Kate, there is one character who is by far the best in the movie. John Ratzenberger pops up about three quarters of the way through as Bill, an electrician who's also an adventurer. Ratzenberger is the only person in House 2 with any comedic chops. He steals the show as soon as he pops up and would have saved the movie if he had more screen time. Bill Mayer is also in House 2 for some reason. I'm not a fan of that guy. Arya Gross played Jesse. He's not funny at all. Jonathan Stark played Charlie. He tries his best but comes off as a much, much less funny Norm MacDonald. There are a lot of neat practical effects in the movie. There's a caterpillar dog hybrid, pterodactyls, and a giant monster dinosaur thing. Most of these creatures look a bit jank, but practical creatures are a good time, even when they aren't amazing. The makeup effects done for Gramps and Slim aren't the worst, but they aren't great either. Slim looks more interesting and skeletal than Gramps. I know that there wouldn't be a movie if Jesse, Charlie, and Gramps just put the skull in a safe or something, but it is pretty silly that the skull is left on a mantle, even after it is stolen from there multiple times. House 2 has a bunch of ideas that should work, but ends up being a mediocre horror comedy with no spookiness or laughs. Like the only related by name original, the sequel is also a huge pass. My journey with the House franchise will end here, unless someone informs me another movie in the series is amazing. Number 6, Nine Lives, 2002, directed by Andrew Green. A group of mostly British friends go to hang out in a Scottish manor that's been in one of the British friends' family for generations. A guy sees something weird and finds a book detailing how the British tortured and killed a Scot named Murray. The guy is then possessed by Murray and starts killing. He's eventually taken out by someone who then becomes possessed. Murray jumps into the body of whoever killed him and continues killing. Two friends, Pete and Laura, are the only ones still alive and not possessed. Laura stabs the friend who's possessed by Murray and kills herself before Murray can take over. Pete, the only Scott in the group, survives. Murray is the killer. Hey Murray, buddy. I get it. The British people killed your friends, took your land, tortured you, and took your life. 
They even made you eat your own eyeballs. That's pretty messed up. But that doesn't justify you killing people generations later. You didn't even only kill British people, Murray. Paris Hilton's character is an American. The biggest pull for Nine Lives is the fact that Paris Hilton is on the cover. Due to her being front and center, I hope that Nine Lives would be a so bad it's good masterpiece. Funnily enough, the only other horror movie I've seen with Paris Hilton in it is legitimately good. I highly recommend the House of Wax remake. I guess you could also consider Repo, the genetic opera, or a horror movie too. I don't love Repo all that much. Anyway, Paris Hilton dies first. She dies off screen from a stab wound to the stomach. Did you know if you are stabbed once in the stomach, you die in minutes? That's what Nine Lives taught me. Even if you receive a slight slash on the stomach, you're completely incapacitated. You'll survive a couple more minutes if you're stabbed in the shoulder, but a stab wound in that spot is also incredibly lethal. Yeah, Nine Lives doesn't really understand stab wounds at all. All the gore is terrible. The entire movie is a boring mess. There are two good parts in Nine Lives. The first, a guy stamps his girlfriend with no hesitation at the first sign that she might be possessed. The speed in which he reacts is comical. The second part is truly amazing and a master class in how you can deal with the problem of your characters having a working cell phone. If the friends could have just called for help, everything would have been so simple. Well, probably not seeing as cops might have shown up, shot the possessed person and become possessed themselves, but ignore that. There was a working cell phone that had to be put out of commission. You see the landline was cut, all the other cell phones didn't have any signal, but one still had the ability to get a call out. Don't worry why the writers decided only one cell phone randomly had a signal while all the others didn't. This one line that was left that could get a message to the outside world was dealt with using the utmost grace and intelligence. I give to you a dramatic retelling of how the only working cell phone was taken out of commission. <clears throat> Ringing was heard from one of the bedrooms. The friends rushed into the sleeping area, quickly scanning the interior for the source of salvation. After jabbing hands into pockets, bags, and covers, the Holy Grail was located. A cellular phone that had signal. As excitement took over, tragedy struck. The grasp of the one fortunate enough to find such a treasure wasn't ironclad. Panic set in as the mobile device slipped from their fingers, like a blindfolded old man attempting a dead sprint across the floor littered with banana peels. The lifeline crashing to the ground was only the first of multiple unfortunate events to follow. In the chaos, a flailing leg would cause a shoot foot to make contact with the cell phone. Every action has an opposite and equal reaction, so the energy from the kick sent the group's last hope for survival into the darkness under one of the beds in the room. A girl in the search party dropped to the floor and shot her arms into the den of monsters. As she swung her arm around frantically, others in the room thought quickly but carelessly. The bed was lifted. Disaster was on the horizon. Before the phone could be rescued and safely cradled in the arms of the girl, the grip on the bed loosened. 
As the bed began its descent back to the carpet, it may as well have transformed into the asteroid that crashed to Earth and wiped out the dinosaurs. The unthinkable happened. The bottom leg of the bed that was recently suspended in the air was coming down as hard as the judge's gavel, sentencing a heinous child murderer to life imprisonment. Despair filled the air as the bed leg slammed down onto the one thing the friends so deeply desired. What cushioned the bed's landing was none other than the only working cell phone. Salvation was instantly obliterated by the ever-so-cruel gravity. If that's not the funniest way a cell phone has been dispatched in a horror movie, I don't know what is. If you have Amazon Prime, I'd say it's worth checking out that one scene. Don't bother with the whole movie, though. Nine Lives is a dull, uninspired slasher with forgettable kills and characters. Paris Hilton didn't save the movie. It wasn't hot. Number 7, Friday the 13th tier list. Since I have now seen every Friday the 13th movie, it only makes sense to rank them. In D tier is Jason Goes to Hell. This one doesn't capture what makes the series fun at all. Jason is barely Jason in it. New Line Cinema doesn't do Jason well. Which brings me to C tier. Moving forward, the order is worst to best. Next up is Jason X. It has some fun in it, but it's a cheap and surprisingly uninspired mess for a movie set hundreds of years in the future. Then there's Freddy vs. Jason. I watched this years ago before watching the 13th series. Post-13th series watch, I'm now on Team Jason. This movie has the same issues that Jason X does, which is staying on the rails. The characters in Freddy vs. Jason are the most boring in the entire series and given the most screen time. Rounding out C tier is the reboot. It's not that bad. If you've never seen it, give it a chance. It's entertaining enough and has a nice take on Jason. Up to B tier. First we have the original. The original was hard to rank. Is it a good Friday the 13th movie? No. The original is a generic slasher ripoff of Halloween. I still enjoy it though, so it weaseled its way into B tier. Next up is part 7, The New Blood. Telekinesis vs. Jason is fun, even though it's a bit stupid. On to part 5, A New Beginning. This installment would easily jump up a tier if the climax wasn't completely beefed. Since Tommy Jarvis doesn't use his martial arts skills against Jason, part 5 is in B tier. Next is Jason Takes Manhattan. Sure, Jason is barely in the big city, but all the boat action is a ton of fun. To the A-tier movies. First up is Part 2, Jason's Killing Debut. It's basically Part 1, but way better. After that is Part 3. This is the first movie in the series to give us Hockey Mask Jason. The 3D kills in it are a blast, even when you aren't actually able to see them in 3D. Two more movies to go. Part 4, the final chapter, finishes up A-tier. It's chock full of Friday the 13th energy, Crispin Glover is in it, the kills are fantastic. This one is amazing. There's one movie left and it's the only S-tier in the series, Jason Lives. This is the perfect Friday the 13th movie. It's self-aware, full of some of the best kills in the franchise, and the first movie in the series to have a 100% supernatural Jason. Those are my rankings. I'll run through them one more time from best to worst. 6, 4, 3, 2, 8, 5, 7, 1, reboot, 
Freddy versus Jason, 10-9. That's a wrap on Blank is the Killer 84, Jason Kills, Macabre Carving, and Skull Thievery. If you had a fun time listening, consider leaving a review on iTunes. I can't express how much a review or a comment on a post about the podcast or literally any kind of positive feedback would mean to me. You can even email me thoughts or a question or a recommendation to blankisthekiller at gmail.com. If you listen to this, you probably like horror movies. If you have an Amazon Prime account, connect it to a Twitch account and join me for Blood and Bone, a weekly horror movie watch party I do at twitch.tv slash bonesawbaker every Monday at 7 p.m. Central. The next Blank is the Killer episode will be out on November 29th. Until then, if you happen to come into possession of a magical crystal skull, consider depositing it in a lockbox so you don't have to deal with all the thieves that want to get their grubby little hands on it.